You're listening to the PGA of Canada Professional Development Podcast, helping you make progress as a teacher, coach, and business owner. Hey, I'm Cordy Walker, and I am your host for today. If you're listening to this, you are probably in Canada. And that means that it gets a little chilly for part or actually most of the year. So what should you do? Well, that was the problem that Rob Holding, 2013 Teacher of the Year, faced a while back. He had to figure out what he was going to do with all these elite players that he was coaching uh, and trying to take them to the next level. He decided to create his own unique indoor facility, and we're going to talk about that today. He is not anymore in that first facility. He's evolved over the years uh, and is in a different one today. So we're going to talk about that process and give you some practical advice. What are the things that you need to focus on if you're starting your own indoor facility? Uh, Or what are some things you don't need to focus on? This is going to be a great conversation to tune in and get some advice from. Let's get to it. So Rob, how's it going? It's great, Cordy. Uh, thanks for having me on your program. And uh, hi to all my friends in the CPGA uh, <laughs> and elsewhere that may have a chance to listen in today. Perfect. So, I mean, take us back to your your first indoor facility. Like, why did you get that facility going? Well, in Vancouver, we sometimes have great weather through the winter and sometimes we don't. And uh, the facility that I was at at the time uh, when we did the first one, was very very cold uh the wind came straight in down the range into the bays and it was just unbearable sometimes so my clientele for many many years since roughly 2000 and 1999 have been high performance uh, juniors and college players and they uh that market trains all year round as you know so it seemed logical to explore a way to get out of the cold from basically uh, sometime in October through to May. And I looked around and found a, a guy who owned a bunch of warehouses uh, that had some some empty space. He was also a golf fanatic. And I, I made him a deal that I would uh, coach him three to four hours a week. And uh, I would pay a little rent and uh, we would use that facility for uh, a, you know, a, whatever period of time the weather warranted. The, the way we started off was to have a personal trainer come in. We invested in some weights and various exercise equipment. We had a treadmill, we had a, a bike to ride. And the space was about 2,200 square feet. Roughly, as I recall, it was 25 feet wide. And I believe it was uh, about 80, 80, 85 feet long. Uh, it was on two levels, although the upper level was, wasn't really used. Uh, everything that we did in the golf end was on the ground floor. It was very, pretty bare bones. We put down some rubber mats in the gym area on top of the concrete. I put in some indoor-outdoor carpet. And uh, at that time, people were hitting into uh, a driving range fishnet, basically, that was hanging from the ceiling and uh, up against the concrete wall. It was a couple of feet away from the wall. And... Um, First thing we did is we bought a flight scope and we were using that. We had trouble indoors back in those days with uh, with radar bouncing off of steel beams and off of garage doors and, and fluorescent lighting. And we then turned around and, and bought, uh, invested in a TrackMan, which was able to perform a little better uh, indoors. That would be right, when there were still boxes. Anyway, the point was that we quickly realized that the environment was pretty boring to learn in. People 
These are people who are pretty keen to practice, and they couldn't really see their ball flight. They could see the TV monitor, and they could see that. They'd have to turn around and look at it. But we couldn't really get a sense of really playing golf. So the next step in the, uh, I guess, about the following season, the following year, we did it again. And uh, we invested in a screen, uh, which wasn't really very expensive. I believe we paid about $1,800 for it and a projector. So then we can project the image we were seeing on the TrackMan driving range on the, and people became a lot more engaged and it was also a better, it was also better for the teacher as well. Uh, then we, that, that was working quite well. So we went to reconfigure the bay a little bit and uh, put in a second hitting area. And so per, people could practice while, while they were waiting for a lesson or after a lesson. And I was the sole teacher, that me and, and the trainer. And we did that, we did that for two years. Uh, it seemed to be making sense because when I really break it down now, I'm indoors roughly eight and a half months of the year and outdoors the rest of the time. I could actually teach indoors year round without even going outdoors. But obviously, uh, I would prefer to get some sunshine <laughs> and, and be outside as well as, you know, the students get out on the golf course and, and play with them. So they, uh, we went from there to a second facility uh, that was a little bit larger, but the layout of it was, was a little better, to, easier to configure, and uh, stayed with that. And then the third year, we had success with it and moved into a space that was about 5,000 square feet. And uh, it, was, it's, it was pretty big, and I brought in a, a, a person as a tenant, a company called Modern Golf, became a tenant in the building, uh, which helped offset some of the costs. We had three hitting bays and a full gym and a really big indoor putting and chipping area. And that business started to take off quite well. Then the problem was the location was not very easy to access after school. In other words, we were in the middle of Surrey and it's no different than Toronto or uh, Ottawa or anywhere else where you've got a lot of population. It's hard to get around in rush hour. So there were a lot of people that wanted to come to our, our, our academy, but they couldn't make the drive. And so I uh, also, these people uh, were pretty affluent people. So this is, these are all important decisions you've got to make if you're thinking about setting up a business and whether it makes sense or not in investing in it. So I decided that uh, I would start looking around in Richmond, and that's where we are now. And... Uh, I looked in Vancouver, Richmond, and different areas, and I was, I was paying particular attention to traffic patterns, finding a location where you, you could access it fairly easily at, at any time. Uh, the new building is 8,000 square feet, and it has uh, four hitting bays, and has a club fitting area. Uh, we have a large indoor green that's uh, uniquely shaped, which people can see online if they want to. We have... Uh, a lounge area for parents. We have a kitchen. We have offices. We have a classroom environment. Uh, we have, you know, a conference area. It's it's pretty amazing. And the interesting thing is that I bought this building and uh, I'm paying myself rent. So from a business standpoint, uh, this all makes pretty good sense. Over time, my capital costs for setting the building up will probably be recouped uh, in. You know, if I sell the building or if I decide to uh, rent it uh, or let someone else carry on the business and, and collect rent from it. So don't look at it as a cost now. I look at it more as an investment. 
So let's go back to that first that first facility and that decision to open that up. Why did you go the route of like getting your own warehouse, building out your own space versus just setting something up in the clubhouse for the winter, for example? Well, that wasn't uh, possible at that particular facility. The people didn't really want to do that. Uh, the, um, the, the other reason for it is uh, just cost and, and independence of doing it. Um, if you're, you know, if you're at a facility, you're normally paying quite a bit of money to be teaching there. You may or may not, depending if you're at a private club or what your arrangement is, but at a public facility, you know, my, my decision was basically, I didn't like, for example, if I wanted to work at 10 o'clock at night during the week, my clubhouse doesn't have any staff there in the wintertime. And then now you've got people in the building it's complicated, right? So the owners like don't really see how that's going to work out. So I don't want to have to pay a security person. There's liability issues. It goes on and on and on. So there's there's more more reasons that people can think of to not do that than, than there are to do it. I know that there's a couple of guys I've met in Ontario that do that, and it works out okay for them. They have a very bit threat, busy club, club that they're at. There's activity there in the evenings all through the year. So it's it's a little different scenario for them. You know, but you, I, you know, be innovative, right? And just try to try to find out uh, uh, your best your best way of going about it. Uh, in retrospect, I think uh, if I wanted to build something that where I had control over my environment, and it's proven to be a good model, it's proven to be very successful, and I'm my own boss, which is pretty nice in this business. So, as most people. You know, as you as you try and establish yourself as a teacher, if you're you get in a, a great facility, you can stay there for many years. You know, hats off to you. But not everyone in the industry is that fortunate. So, I mean, let's talk about that that first facility because I think most of the people listening, or a lot of people listening, don't have a facility, and and they're kind of listening to this and thinking about, huh, I wonder wonder if I could do this, right? So those those first decisions that you made to find someone that you knew that liked golf had a warehouse, you know, and kind of negotiating something with him, getting some rent and then getting things set up. Like, how did that process go? Looking back on that, reflecting on that, is there anything you would have done differently or anything that worked out really well? No, I don't think we would have done it any differently. If I'd known um, at the time when we started it that, uh, and that's a great question, uh, by the way, if I were to do it again and I had and I, I, I knew that it was going to be as successful as it turned out to be, I would have invested uh, more in technology and I would have invested more in uh, the environment of making it, you know, a really cool place. I mean, you're not sure how it's going to go. You're going to, you know, wade into the water very carefully and, and uh, minimize your risk. But uh, if you build it, they will come. If you do it right, they will, they will come. I mean, even though it wasn't the best location for people, we still were busy. The difference is, is that we were bringing people in from communities that, let's just say they're not affluent communities. So this is something you have to consider. If you're going to do an indoor place, who are my clients? Where are they coming from? You need to know that. You need to really think that through. You need to look at the hourly rate that they will pay to go indoors. Uh, You need to look at the demand for your time. So obviously, if you're going to charge, you know, 75 or 80 bucks an hour, in some kind of a program. Group programs don't work particularly well indoors because of a space problem. It's pretty hard to have 
numbers of people hitting balls. If you don't, if you do, then you're going to have a much larger space. Even in my space, it's awkward to try and run groups right now. We do mainly private coaching. Almost 100% of it is just private one-on-one lessons. So backing up, who's your market? How much will they pay? How much is the rent going to be? How much is it going to cost me to buy or rent the technology that I need to do it in furnishings, fitness equipment? Can you find a trainer that owns their own fitness equipment that can come in and, uh, and work with you? And are you in a high-performance model? I don't think, I don't know of anybody in Toronto other than maybe uh, the, the uh, Liam's old place, the golf lab, that uh, is attracting a lot of adults uh, during the wintertime. Uh, meaning your 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 run-of-the-mill golfer who's you know playing 30, 40 times a year, they're not necessarily going to train in the wintertime. So the ones that do come are probably pretty motivated. Maybe they're you know they're traveling and they play golf while they travel through the through the winter. But in my case, I found that by moving to an area that was uh, where the incomes were quite a bit higher, I was able to charge more and make it more worthwhile and offer something that those kinds of people were looking for that was a little more exclusive. Yeah, I think you said something really important there. When you first started, the conversation was that you you knew your students were these elite juniors, these high performers, and they were practicing and playing all year long anyways. So why not just support that better, you know? And so this aligned really well with with your audience, which is super important. And I think it's a good kind of warning is don't dive into this. Maybe if, you know, if, if you're looking at recreational adults, like how, you know, that might be a little trickier than than this uh, elite junior. It is. It, it is a lot trickier. And, you know, I've, I've said this before to lots of the people that were asking about it. You probably would want to be a fairly established teacher, have a fairly established clientele before you made a move indoors. Otherwise, you're going to probably take a bath financially on it. You know, it's, it's not like you can just go and spend a lot of money in advertising and tell people about your business and make any money out of it. You, you won't. You need to have... You need to just be able to have enough students to say, okay, I'm, I'm, this is where I'm going to be this winter. And they'll show up and they'll, they'll help you pay the bills. And you know, there's, there's different ways of looking at it. I remember thinking to myself, well, if I'm out of business from basically mid-November through to May, and there's four or five months there where I have very little activity, uh, what's the cost of that? And the cost of not teaching was, you know, outweighed the cost of being in business year round. So now there's never a day when I can't work if, if I choose not to, right? There's, we have, we can be, we're not subject to weather. We're not subject to someone's whims. We're not subject to somebody saying, oh, we have a tournament on today and we need all the stalls. You're not losing, you know, time through uh, when, when all these big tournaments show up at your, at your facility and, and the drain, the range is packed and, uh, and you're, you're told basically, well, you know, you can't do any lessons for this two-hour period, and you've got five teachers, <laughs> so that's 10 hours of instruction, and that's a lot of money you know, on a daily basis, and it adds up. So those are all the reasons why you know you, you, you may choose to be a little more independent. You know, I think there's, there's this other reason, and, and you kind of touched on it there of, you know, if someone's teaching and they're like, oh, man, you know, I get this in a facility that's great during the winter, but then we've got summer, right? And I'm not going to use this thing at all, maybe. What would be your kind of advice to to that person? That's a great question. In my case, what we've done is we've invested in fitting in the fitting business. So the fitting business can run all year round. 
and uh, I don't necessarily have to be there in the summertime. We have a, a couple of fitters. We have one guy. Uh, well, actually, they're both in the PGA of Canada, uh, and one is, is particularly interested in developing his teaching skills. So it's a good it's a good relationship where uh, you know I'm helping helping him learn how to teach, and uh, he can make a good living. And he also is a very you know competent fitter. So there's a revenue being made there, even if I'm not there. And versus, you know, people, I, this is our first, going to be our first summer in business at this new facility. So I'm not 100% sure what's going to happen, but I'm not planning. And it was interesting. I was talking to one of my staff last night and I said, you know, we, we also have a relationship at a local driving range. And he said, well, I'm not going to bother going to the driving range through the winter and I through the summer. And I said, oh, well. You don't think your students will want to be outside? He said, no, like, you know, I, we like taking lessons indoors. Now, you have to consider who this guy's clientele is. You're young people, primarily maybe say let's eight to 12 years old, and they're at a stage where they're trying to develop their skills. And he does take them out on the golf course, but he doesn't see a need to hit balls at a driving range. So it's just his perspective, but yeah. Got it. So maybe, you know, we've got club fitting that could cover some costs during the summer because that's all year round. We've got maybe some will just want to keep going indoors. You know, you might have a percentage of clients that enjoy that environment. Maybe let's get some numbers going here for folks. You know, if they're thinking about getting started, right, this is like bare bones. I I might want to think about doing this. Like what would someone kind of expect maybe for a rent for a warehouse, right? Like I think the warehouse model is interesting that you're talking about. And then maybe like bare bones technology that you think would be like going back if you wanted to just bootstrap it and keep it as minimal as possible from day one that you think would be, would be a good idea. All right. Well, starting with the bare bones one, uh, and you want to get something going, what you're going to need for a bay, if you're using, let's say you're using a foresight, not a track net, the foresight requires less space. Uh, You can have the hitting mat closer to a screen, for example. I think to have a a nicer environment, you want to be at least 10 to 15 feet away from the screen when you're hitting balls. You don't want to be 10 feet because you you feel claustrophobic. So let's say you have 15 feet and the foresight sits in front of the student. You don't need a lot of room behind them. You probably need another six to seven feet minimum. So you're looking at a space that's about the size of an average garage, about 20, 21 feet in depth. And then the width should probably be minimum of 15 feet. Now, that's that's going to that's gonna do well for one teacher. So if you do the math on that, it's roughly 325 square feet per bay. So let's say you have a place that has maybe 1,500 square feet, and you have room in there to put down some turf so people can practice putting. You've got some room for... You know, some fitness equipment, you've got room for exercising, uh, stretching, and you've got two bays going. And one is for you and one is for another teacher, and you're sharing the costs of doing it. So if you look at it, you need a mat. Uh, a good mat system is about $700. Uh, you need a projector, which is about $700. You need, uh, what else would you need? A screen, maybe $1,200 for that. You know, then I guess you could put in what we do. And now is we just put we turf the whole main floor and and so you can hit balls anywhere uh, in the downstairs area you can hit pitch shots chip shots you can chip to the hole, holes we drill holes in the concrete and set the cups in 
the newer place that we have has a pretty elaborate green. It costs about $55,000 to build it. Uh, actually, that's the green and turfing the whole downstairs, which is over 5,000 square feet. Uh, so roughly $10 a square foot, your budget for that. And so again, if you have an 800 square foot area, you can look at about $8,000. Now, the thing you want to do is that if we're going to move into this place and we're going to use it, and even if we're only using it six months of the year, the numbers could still work. And what you need to think about is long-term. You need to think about this cost and this investment over maybe the next five or six or 10 years of your career. And you have this, this space of course, and it, you know, as, as, as things develop, opportunities come along, you never really know. But if you weigh the cost of that investment and spread it out over that, that time period, it's pretty attractive. And it's also, if you think that you're going to be fairly successful with that, then buy it. Find a place you can buy and you won't regret it. Real, commercial real estate, probably the largest growing sector in commercial real estate is warehousing. And part of that is because of the logistics uh, business. Uh, right now, companies like Amazon and, and others are, are really big into people buying online and they need warehouses to expedite the stuff out to their, their customers. So if you own a warehouse, you're in pretty good shape. You're, gonna, you're probably going to see an appreciation in your market. Toronto, I believe the cost per square foot of rent is, I think it's around $8 uh, plus what they call common costs. So you might have three or $4 on top of your $8 base rent. So you're looking at $12 a square foot. In Vancouver, it's almost, well, double to three times that. Don't ask me why, that's just Vancouver, but if you wanted to rent the facility I'm in, you'd be looking at probably a net cost of 18 or $19 a square foot. So if you've got 8,000 square feet, that's quite a bit of money, but it still works because we have more space, we have better location, we have uh, high visibility to a highway that has 120,000 cars a day going by. Uh, you don't start there, but uh, you could end up there in less time than you think if you're, if you're successful. If you're enjoying this conversation with Rob Holding, I want to recommend another PGF Canada professional development resource you might be interested in. It's a video series as well as a workbook called Adapt or Vanish. You can find it under the Education tab, Professional Development, and then Business Planning on the PGF Canada website. I recommend that you check this out. It's Adapt or Vanish on the site. So we've got maybe 1,500 square feet of a warehouse we're putting in one bay to start out with just to just to get going. You might try to turf the whole thing and, and add in some holes so there can be some putting and stuff going on as well. Uh, an interesting thing that you've, uh, or an interesting word that you've used a couple of times is environment and how you can control the environment when you have your own space like this. And I think that's a pretty cool idea. And maybe talk about that more. Like how how do you control the environment or what are some of the things that that are appealing about controlling the environment in an indoor space like this to you? Well, typically, if you're in a a high-performance model, uh, you're going to see your clients with a fair amount of frequency. So in other words, they could be coming once a week, twice a week, or even three times a week. Uh, They're coming in to have golf instruction. They're coming in to interact with their friends. They're coming in to – and usually these people are being driven there. They're not usually driving themselves. So now you have a parent or two parents, as the case may be, waiting around while the kid spends two hours doing whatever they're doing. Where, you know, uh, how, what have you done to make it comfortable for them? 
What have you done to make it more convenient for them? So it's not, it's, not, it's a place that they actually look forward to going to. So we have a lounge with a nice big TV, a kitchen where they can make themselves coffee or tea. They can cook a meal. They can microwave, you know, uh, they can, they can pick up sushi on the way and eat it there. Uh, save time after school. Uh, we have nice change rooms that are well finished for people, washrooms. It's a nice place and, and people are really impressed by it. So then, you know, if you're, if you're, everything was done, like typically in a warehouse, usually the washrooms and other things are not very nice. And you have to, you know, consider that you want to, it's your brand, right? That you're building. And if, like, if you're going into this with a long-term view, then my advice is to bite the bullet and, and make an investment in yourself. You know, you don't have to spend it all the first year, but try and do things nicely and do them well and good uh, quality and they're going to last longer. Anybody that is thinking about doing this, they are welcome to call me. I get calls from all over the world about this. You know, like, what do you think? Should I do this? Should I do that? And we've made lots of mistakes, which is great. So we, we learn from those and we, we move on. But, um, you know, you're, you're probably your single biggest cost is a launch monitor. And maybe you already own one. So it's not, it's not going to be a big deal. The other thing you can do is, for example, uh, let's say a lot of other pros in your area don't do a lot of teaching in the wintertime. And they don't have an indoor place. Well, offer to rent their trackman or their, their flight scope or whatever they're using. And you don't have to lay out the big dollars to, to buy it. Or, you know, you can, uh, there's, I think there are companies that will actually do uh, short-term leases on, on equipment uh, if you can't afford to, to do that. But you can buy, I mean, you, you can buy a tra used TrackMan probably for ten or $12,000. You can buy, today you can probably buy a, a quad, for example. I think they're about $21,000 Canadian. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's, there's just ways of, of doing it. I would suggest that you get, you know, a quad is a, is a great tool to have indoors. The Foresight with HMT is also a great tool. And TrackMan 4 is, is better than ever indoors. They're pricey, but it makes, it tells people that you're serious. And if you are really serious, and you're dealing with serious players, you need good technology. You, know, you don't want to be making decisions on golf swings with bad information. And you want something that's uh, consistent, that performs well. Like typically, my stuff is turned on from, it's seven or eight hours a day. It's running every day. And uh, with the exception of maybe over Christmas when we take a little bit of a break. So it needs to be pretty reliable. Uh, it's very frustrating to be charging a lot of money per hour for lessons and have equipment breakdowns in the middle that, you know, you've spent 15 minutes of that one hour rebooting a computer or trying to figure out what wire, you know, came loose. And, and it's just not something you want to be dealing with. You don't want video programs that are crashing and, and so on. So, uh, yeah, buy good computers. <laughs> that's uh, that's some wise words. I, I like that idea to invest in the infrastructure so it it doesn't break down. Uh, for, like you know, you say about the environment. Okay, uh, it it's it's done well. Uh, it, it looks great. People are proud to be there. Part of it that uh, it's 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 you know the turf that we use is is the highest quality turf. The green is meticulously built so that it replicates exactly what you're going to see like in a typical tour event. Uh, the stimp runs around 11 or 12, uh, depending on, interestingly enough, depending on the humidity level in the, in the building. And the holes are set in such a way that there's not a lot of boredom that's going to happen. There's nothing goofy about the green. It's just that each hole is designed with a specific type of break. 
So one might have a short snapping putt you got to really commit to. And then there's others that just have a nice, you know, over a 15-foot rule, might have a half a cup of break, uh, left to right, right to left, uphill, downhill. It's a pretty good design and very functional. We also have another area upstairs for putting, which you might call like a block practice, more of a block practice type of putting area. But it's also a putter fitting area. So it's just two holes that are 20 feet apart in a very flat area. And uh, we have a sand putt lab up there and some video technology as well. And we have an area upstairs that we use for a running track in the gym that we also use for lag putting, which is about 60 feet long. And it's a slower, the turf is a little bit slower running than the green is. So it's good for like practicing. Uh, kids start playing tournaments in the spring. And one of the problems is that if you've been practicing indoors on an 11 or 12 stamp and you go outdoors and it's, the, the greens are running at 8 or 10, adjusting to the speed is difficult so we have we have a way of helping them do that it usually takes a, a little bit of time for people to adapt uh, especially for kids more so than experienced you know adults but so yeah then you know we've got science and we've got uh, history so we're talking about environment uh, we have flags from u.s opens and flags from u.s juniors and u.s amateurs signed by the players we have flags from all the universities that uh, our students have gotten scholarships at uh, hanging up uh, on the walls, things that will help motivate people and inspire them to to reach higher. We have televisions on all the different areas where you know got the golf channel running a lot. You know, just things that, that it's not uh, it's not like you're in a warehouse. <laughs> no, for sure. And, and you've used this. You've mentioned the word boredom a couple times, and I think that's really important for people to kind of key into here. Is that in a very sterile block? practice environment it's easy for things to get boring and so it's it's good to focus on that with an indoor facility especially of like how do we make things not boring <laughs> you know well uh challenges uh games uh the technology uh for example you've got with the foresight we use the uh, we have five golf courses so you could come in and typically the, the it might be set during a lesson say person wants to work on their swing and they're hitting the mid iron and it's set on driving range mode and uh, it might stay there for the whole hour while they work on on that so they're getting data on the on what the club is doing and they're getting ball flight visually but consider that this person has been coming for a while now and it's the same old same old so what you can do is turn on the golf course mode and take them out to different holes and put them in different situations and have them hit approach shots on a practice mode into different pin positions. And now, now it's the kids really respond to that. They love that. And uh, change it up. Try moving, you know, the, the uh, let's say you're at 150 yards and the person is hitting a seven iron, move them back to 160 yards and see if they can get the seven iron there with a different ball flight or move it a little closer and have them hit the seven iron and see if they can take something off the shot. And they're a little more engaged that way because you're, 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 you know, you also, for example, if I'm working on wedges or distance control with wedges, this has to be done on field. You can say, give me a 32-yard lob wedge. And we're talking carry distance. So carry this 32 yards. And they try and do that. And it pops up on the screen and it's 34. And you say, now give me 56. Now give me 41. Give me 17. And see if they can change it up. And, and it's, uh, it's engaging for them to see uh, that they can actually start to do that. 
and it's it's indoors that's tricky but it can be done and you're trying to get people into the into feeling what they're doing more than being distracted you can also with technology the way we use it set for example you can get 31 different data points on a track map or actually more than that but 31 is way too many typically i'll use five or six and if i want to key in on something i'll take everything else away and use one so let's say i'm working on path the only big number up there is path that's what we're working on and they're getting instant feedback every time they hit a shot and they're also seeing what has happened with the ball flight so they start to be able to correlate what path means and what it, how it's affecting the direction of the ball and and uh the distance it's traveling and so forth so you know i, I think it challenges you to be innovative uh we play games with the like what some of our teachers are doing is they'll have a student play golf on the golf course and then the actual putt they just move over to the putting green and hit hit the putt and they keep score they play nine holes that way and they can do it fairly quickly and it's because you're really putting and you're you know the, the launch monitor will tell you that you've got 18 feet to the hole so they just walk over and go 18 feet from a hole with a similar looking break and they putt and they it's real bullets so that that's that helps it be more engaging uh and putting you know is trying to I don't know if they've ever used an indoor simulator for putting, but they're usually not very good. <laughs> I want to ask one other thing that I found interesting that you did from the very start is that you had uh, someone else in there with you. So you, you mentioned you had a trainer in there with you from day one, it sounded like, which which is an interesting choice. Could you could you maybe talk about some starting points? You obviously have you know club fitting now and trainers and other teachers in, in your facility at this point. But getting started, like, how do you feel about that decision to bring a trainer in from day one? Would you still do that? Would you bring someone else in from day one? Like, what do you think? Uh, no, I, I, I 100%. Uh, a trainer is a great asset in my business. When you're dealing with uh, developing players, it's really important that you know what you're dealing with. And even for a very, very experienced teacher, you can't be all things to all people. You don't have time, you know, it's hard enough staying up with all the advancements in technology and learning about psychology and learning about the body and biomechanics. And there's a lot of stuff going on. So if you have a trainer that is very skillful assessing a player's condition, it can save you a lot of time and trouble. Like you may be asking someone to do things that their body isn't really capable of yet. And it's just going to frustrate them if you keep pushing that, you know, pushing that button. So you have to find workarounds and you know, during that process you're trying to encourage the student if they have aspirations to be competitive golfer power is part of being competitive so they need to train and <laughs> training once a week isn't, isn't going to do it for anybody you've got to get in uh, uh, and get some good direction on areas that you need to target in your body and hopefully have some discipline uh, when you're not at the indoor facility to go to the go to a, a local fitness place or maybe you know you're lucky enough to have have something in your home that, that you can do you know, a workout with. I don't think you can be taken seriously in competitive golf without having a complete package. So you need you need someone that is able to talk mental game uh, skills. You need someone that can talk uh, fitness, nutrition. Basically, you know, availing uh, people the opportunity to to hit, cover all the bases. We dedicate a fair amount of space to the fitness area, and frankly. It's not the most revenue-producing area. Now, what I'm going to speaking about that, uh, we have a large area for the gym, but the gym 
the way we train, it's, it's very uh, golf related. We're doing a lot of very unique exercises with them. This coming fall, what I'll do is I'm going to add two more uh, hitting mats up in the gym and put up a screen like we had in the original place to make now we have six bays running at night instead of four. So 50% increase in capacity. And the way it's set up is that it's like a curtain. So you can slide it away, use the area for running back and forth and doing obstacle courses and things. Or you can also hit balls or you can actually do a combination of, of the two. So again, using the space a little more efficiently. And uh, uh, we have a ceiling issue upstairs where our ceiling is uh, nine feet, which is about six inches short of ideal <laughs> ideal would obviously be much higher, but but uh, we didn't talk about that. In a warehouse, you don't usually have too many restrictions on ceiling height. But in uh, a building like we have now, where we have a mezzanine, I would suggest you need you want to have at least ten feet, nine feet, six, nine feet, eight minimum. But upstairs, we have only nine feet. So what what do we do? Well, that's where the little guys are going to go. So there's lots of room for someone who's eight or nine or 10 years old to swing a golf club uh, without, you know, having any, any safety concerns. And then leave the downstairs area where we have more ceiling height, you know, for, for the bigger kids and adults. Awesome. We have covered a lot of ground, Rob, in, in, in this half hour. Is there anything that we have skipped that you think is, is kind of vitally important for people thinking about going down this journey? Or have we, have we covered a lot of the important, important things here? I think, I think that one of the things that I would caution people about is uh, partners. <laughs> so, for example, you may decide to partner with, you start talking to a couple of golf pros and say, okay, let's do this this winter. And everybody's in, everybody's really excited. And you get a lease, and then you find out that one of those partners or, or both of them don't have enough clients and uh, don't have the wherewithal to meet their end of the financial obligation, and you get stuck on the hook. So I would say to you that if you're going to have partners, it's business, then have them put up personal guarantees, something to consider, so that you don't, you don't end up uh, being the most enthusiastic person <laughs> in the business and, and someone else is getting a free ride um, for whatever reason. You know, it's, it's, people have good intentions, but if you're going to sign a lease, it's very hard to get out of a lease. That is good advice. And I think something to note is, is you have not had partners in any of these facilities. Is that right? No. Got it. And that was a choice that, that you made then is to, is to take that all on yourself. Right. And I feel good with that. I, I know that if I had to carry this place myself, I could just on my own business. So it's fun and it's challenging for me to try and grow this business and help other teachers. Uh, basically, the way I work is that every student, almost every student, like 98% of the people that come to the facility are coming because they want lessons from Rob Holding. And it's so busy that it's impossible to do that, right? So you have to have assistants and the assistants are, uh, so each one of our students has more than one coach. They have me and they have someone else. And I am responsible for their development. I get involved and that's how it works. Now, interestingly, what we also do is we make available during the daytime in the winter, if other golf teachers want to come in and bring their students in, then we charge them a facility fee. So there's another area for revenue, and I don't find that threatening at all. I think it's great. Uh, so if you have two or three teachers in your area that are, are, are fairly busy and they're, they're good people, invite them to use your, use your space. Even offer, offer them, for example, 
If you think you're going to be here 15 or 20 hours a week, then buy a package of hours and save some money. If you want to use this as a drop-in fee, then this is the rate. If you want to commit to being here more frequently during these hours, these open windows of time, give them a better rate. And now you're making money from them as well. So uh, it's helping pay your, your costs. Absolutely. Rob, so many really actionable insights here and, and great advice from your experiences. Really appreciate it. If people want to check out your current facility, maybe like look at some pictures or shoot you a message, how would they how would they go about doing that? Well, we have a lot of pictures on Rob Holding Golf on Facebook. You know, just accumulate over time. You can see various stages of development uh, from the studs right up to what it is now. My website is robholdinggolf.ca, and there are quite a few pictures in there with the facility. Yeah, and then if someone you know has a real real interest in this, they just they can they can email me or they can personal me- private message me on Facebook. I don't use Instagram as much as I probably should. <laughs> can't you know just lots of uh, comments on the Facebook side. We yeah. get a lot of we get a lot of questions about what we're doing and how we do it. Awesome. Yeah. Make sure to, to reach out to Rob. If you, if you do have a question, he's a, a fantastic resource as he's had so much experience with all of these things. And uh, thanks for opening up and, and sharing what's uh, gone on in, in your story and, and with your development as a teacher and a, and a business owner over the years, Rob. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. And good luck to everyone out there. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. Hope you came away with some really actionable insights from this conversation with Rob. If you have any questions, make sure to reach out to him and get those answered. And make sure to listen to the rest of the episodes in this series, the PGF Canada Professional Development Podcast. Hopefully, we'll see you all next week.